global warming is going to solve all of this anyway. Um, it's, you know, all of the, the cities will be hot Ooh, in okay. November still, so yeah. it'll be fine. Now, they will have to find a way to construct floating ballparks. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is November 2nd, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining us from New York is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, how's it going, Sarah? Good. How are you? I'm good. Happy Election Day. Oh, is if, it an election day? To those day? who celebrate, <laughs> today is an election day. Yeah. I didn't know. Uh, to me, it's just game <laughs> six of the World Series day. Right. Yeah, that is the more important holiday to observe, obviously. <laughs> from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm, Happy I'm, election day. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a big one. It's not a big one. Uh hey, let's check in on our survivor pool. This was a, a weird week, though it's always a, a weird week when the Jets win a football game, so it's confusing. <laughs> uh Jeff Jeff lost in the survivor pool, but but won as a fan by picking the it. Bengals. Yeah. I'll take it. I um you know, it, it turned out that Mike White is a golden god. <laughs> and the franchise has been saved. Zach Wilson, uh, see you later. Yep. Uh, we can find you uh, maybe another place to play, or I don't know. Yeah, doesn't Ca- really matter. Carolina, maybe? I don't know. Because we're in Mike yeah. White land. <laughs> yeah, Mike White, it's so crazy. It's like if Mike White can come out and throw for 400 yards against the Bengals, it does, doesn't that say something about Zach Wilson? Like, I know it's a, maybe a little unfair or whatever, but like, come on, man. Like, you could have been doing this. Why weren't you doing this? Well, I mean, Mike White also didn't throw the ball further than 10 yards down the field, I think, or that's something all he like needed. that. I mean, that's efficient. It, it was a, he didn't need it to was do a more. Dink, it was a very much a, uh, a West Coast offense. Yeah, that's right. That's the best say. way to describe it. Yeah, but Zach Wilson, we've seen him throw the ball deep, but like mostly to uh, defenders where the no receiver yeah. was anywhere nearby. <laughs> So he can throw it far, yeah. but like uh, maybe arm strength is overrated. All right. Well, anyway, <laughs> so Jeff lost a point in the survivor pool. Neil and I both won. Neil's Bills won fairly handily. My Chiefs barely the wagons. by the Giants. Good grief. Yeah. What a what an ugly that, game that, that was. By the way, that Bills game, the Bills were, it was pretty ugly and close the for a while. The first half was yeah, not, it wasn't great. Not, not good. Yeah. They, uh, they looked much better by the fourth quarter. Um, but really, the important thing here is that I have seven points and Neil and Jeff each have six. Uh, that is the uh, the salient takeaway here. The cream rises to the top. Exactly. So the order for this week is Sarah, Jeff, Neil. I am not going to get cute at all. I'm going to take the Bills over the Jaguars. This, though, this is great. This is going to be the test of when he, whether the Manning cast curse is real. Josh Allen was on the Manning cast last night for Monday Night Football. Uh, every player who's been on has lost in the following week. If the Bills lose to the Jaguars, then then it's then we'll know that it is really a curse. They should so have if I've they should have hedged <laughs> their bets by having both Josh Allens on. So then Ooh. one will win, one will lose, no matter what. That's yeah, that's smart. They they really should have done that. Um, okay, Jeff, who are you taking? I'm kind of in a tough spot here because even if I wanted to take the Colts, which I don't. That would, can you imagine if I went against the Jets twice in a row and lost both times? Amazing. Um, I would. I think the next bet would be the Cowboys, but uh, do we know if Dak's playing? Does it matter? They've got Cooper Rush. Yes. Almost as good <laughs> as Mike Rush. White. Cooper Rush could be the next Mike White. Think about yeah, that, I, folks. I think he is the next he Mike White. He already is. I'm the Cowboys. I, I'm, you're right. Cooper Rush is, is great. Um, <laughs> he's... Probably better than Dak, let's be honest. Let's um, be honest. <laughs> so I'll take the Cowboys with quarterback unknown. Although I think <laughs> Dak will be back. He almost played in this game. I yeah. thought he was going to yeah. play, yeah, uh, until the 11th hour. Um, yeah, so this kind of leaves me with a tough, tough call. There's not much after. I'll yeah, there's that much. really not a whole lot going on. I mean, you mentioned the Colts. You haven't used the Rams, though. Uh, oh, I haven't. Oh, they're playing the Titans, but yeah, it's it's the next biggest spread. No Derek, <laughs> no Derek Henry. Uh, I don't know. Maybe 
I, you know, that one, our model, I think, is probably less high on the Rams in that one. Um, but I don't know. Uh, take the Colts. I'm going to take. I dare amazing. you. I'm going to take. I dare you. I'm going to take the Colts at home. Fucking wow. Carson Wentz. You know what? No, I rescind that pick. I'm going to take oh my Lamar gosh. Jackson and Baltimore at home against Minnesota. Book it. Yeah, obviously. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, why was. The, yeah, that was. Yeah, I was like, really? I saw Carson Wentz. Uh, do everything in his power to lose that game. It was bringing me back Eagles, you know, Eagles Carson Wentz flashbacks where he did that pass at the goal line. Uh, Was it left-handed? Whatever it was that got returned for pick six. Ugly, hero ball garbage from Carson Wentz. I don't need more of that in my life. I was done with that. Good luck to the Colts, though. Good luck. All right. On today's show, we'll discuss the World Series and whether the Braves are ruining baseball with their pitching changes. Then we'll check in on college football and what an effective playoff might look like. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The World Series currently stands at 3-2 in favor of the Braves, with Game 6 tonight in Houston. The games have been intense and dramatic, but don't worry, people have still found something in the on-field action to complain about. In Saturday's Washington Post, Barry Verluga criticized the Braves' decision to pull Ian Anderson after five innings in Game 3 when he had a no-hitter going. The Braves won that game, of course, but Verluga argued that baseball itself lost. By the way, this audio is from the read-along version of the article, so if it sounds a little stilted, that is on Jeff Bezos and not Verluga himself. Yet something was lost Friday night at Truist Park. Take away the notion that Anderson was going to throw a no-hitter because he wasn't. At his rate, and with his control, Snicker would have gotten an inning, at most two, more out of the 23-year-old. The no-hitter thing, Snicker said, he wasn't going to pitch a nine-inning no-hitter. There is the following fact, however, he had only thrown 76 pitches. He had a no-hitter going. And he wasn't allowed to pursue it, even to the point when he had physically maxed out. In Anderson's last three starts of the regular season, he threw 99, 97, and 91 pitches, respectively. Snitker did his job, too. He did what was best for his team Friday night, and Atlanta leads the World Series because of it. But the sport took another hit. A pitcher throwing a no-hitter builds inning over inning, drawing viewers and creating drama along the way. If the best thing for a manager is to make sure a guy doesn't push himself to throw more no-hit ball, baseball loses one of the ways it once drew fans and made history. So, okay. Analytics have ruined baseball, made it less fun for fans. We get it. This specific narrative, though, is something I hadn't heard before, that fans want to see a so-so pitcher keep pitching just because he hasn't given up a hit yet. Remember, Ian Anderson had walked three Astros and hit another, so this wasn't exactly a gem being thrown. Jeff, did, did we as fans really lose out on something by by Anderson getting the hook after five? Well, I mean, yeah, it would have been more entertaining. That, that's the thing. It was the 100% right move if you're a Braves fan or, a, you know, a part of the Braves organization. But to the objective onlooker, yeah, I mean, yeah, it'd be more fun to watch him throw a no-hitter. It's not going to happen, though. I mean, in this particular case... As you said, he didn't really have good control. Uh, he he walked three guys and had hit a guy. So th- that alone is not a reason to like, you don't want to keep someone in who's, who's walking a lot of guys. That, that will eventually catch up to you, especially when he was like going, I think he was just about to see the top of the order for the third time. Mm-hmm. Um, the second part is that that drives up your pitch count. And, and I think, you know, this was discussed after the game. Even if he were to throw a no hitter, it would have been like, at that rate, it would have been over 140 pitches. So that's not happening unless he's, you know, Johan Santana uh, a couple <laughs> years ago who <laughs> effectively ended his career trying to throw a no-hitter. Yeah, Ian Anderson, 23-year-old uh, up-and-coming starter, <laughs> probably don't want to serve him up to that same fate. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it, 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 I mean, this could be an argument for the regular season. I think this happens all the time. You know how I feel about 
bullpen no hitters or shared no hitters. They're not no hitters. So yes, if you want to like nitpick that that part of the game, you know, we saw this over and over. I think we talked about this. This is happening a lot more. Guys are getting pulled um, without giving up a hit. So there, maybe you can make this argument, but in the World Series, like there's a reason it, it doesn't happen very often. It only happened with Don Larson and, and I guess Roy Holiday in the playoffs, um, but only once in the World Series, and that was a perfect game. You're going to be super careful. Yeah, is there something I kind of see, and maybe I'm wrong for thinking this, uh, but like I see no hitters as like a regular season accomplishment. And like, yeah, Roy Halladay and, and Don Larson, guys like that, it it could happen if it's like a freak circumstance. I mean, it's super duper rare, but mainly it just feels like a regular season thing because it's like outside the context. Uh, obviously, you usually win when you have a no hitter. Uh, it, it would be possible to lose, but uh, very unlikely. But it's really like one of these kind of arbitrary accomplishments that are sort of outside the realm of winning and losing that you're trying to kind of check the box on and and that feels to me more like something you do in one of 162 regular season games in the dog days of summer it's like oh this guy's got a no hitter developing let's see where it goes yeah maybe that like costs us the game obviously we don't want him to get hurt also you know by overuse but like yeah let's see where it goes where it's in the world series it's like you're not playing let's see what happens here let's see where this goes you're like we want to win the championship it's right in front of us and maybe that's like a silly distinction to make uh as herm edwards said you play to win the game no matter what (laughs) but like i don't know it just feels to me more like chasing a no-hitter and that sort of like specific somewhat arbitrary um, accomplishment is more of a, a thing that you do in the regular season yeah I fully agree I, but I also like I don't I, I understand this idea that watching a no-hitter develop is dramatic but like this is the World Series it was already dramatic like we don't need to, that kind of we don't need that drama we have the drama of this being a World Series game like I don't I don't feel like the fans missed out on something even more fun when there's already such a big fun thing happening. It's a World Series game. I just that that was that was a shocking take to me. Like that we are losing something here when it's already like fans want to win that game. I don't think people care how they do it. You want to win. You want your team to win. I mean, it was in Atlanta. You're not rooting for anything other than a Gonna win, right? Particularly right? since, it, like we've been saying, it's not like you see no hitters in the World Series as like a normal matter of course in the past. So it's like, oh, we're really being deprived of this thing that we used to see all the time. It's like that right. almost never happens anyway. So you know, it's not like it's it's really not like unusual to not see it. Yeah, you could make an argument that it, the smart move of a guy who's clearly pitching very well and, and how important the bullpens are in this series, like maybe use the opportunity to save your bullpen a little bit more. But he wasn't pitching that well. I mean, that was sort of part of it. Yeah, I that's think. the thing. Yeah. That's, yeah. It goes back to that. But like that could be an argument, but not an argument to keep Anderson in there for the nine innings. I mean, that, now we're talking about like maybe two more innings would have made sense and some, you know, uh, under some manager's, perception of how to how to hold the or how to preserve the bullpen but not it's also was if it was 3-0 maybe that's different I don't know yeah yeah it was so close I you know this the argument about you know that that he can certainly throw more pitches than 76 yeah of course it wasn't about the pitch number it was about who he was facing next that he was going to face Jose Altuve next who I mean I just feel like it was pretty yeah. well set up for Altuve to like hit it, hit one out. I mean, that it had nothing to do with the pitch count there. It was only about the odds facing the top of the very dangerous Houston order there. I, you know, it was interesting. I, I, this decision by, by Brian Sinker, it, it obviously had its critics like this writer, but I was reminded of the decision last year from Tampa's Kevin Cash to pull B- Blake Snell in the sixth inning of what turned out to be the final game of the 2020 World Series. That was debated for what seemed like a very long time. And this one doesn't really feel like it has the legs of that. Neil, is that just because Snickers' move worked and and Cash's didn't? Yeah, I think there's a degree of that, right? You know, that um, 
we judge things by the outcomes, knowing now what happened. Uh, that allows you to kind of duck some criticism. But I also think, like, it's weird. I thought that Snitker, because of the way he framed it and because just sort of his overall kind of manner diffused some of this criticism as well. That's why I was a little surprised to see that there was, uh, you know, some criticism still, is that, like, because... He's more of kind of an old school, folksy, whatever kind of traditionalist type of guy. And he said that he based the decision on his gut, uh, not the analytics. And and the Braves don't have the reputation that the Rays have as being this sort of, you know, computer managed team or whatever that uh, that uh, that gave him cover for this type of decision. So I think if it were the Rays that that this happened with uh, again, and we don't like you said, we don't have to look far back for an example of that very thing. There would have been more criticism because I think that the reputation uh, for the Rays led to this idea that, oh, it's just the numbers saying this and the numbers are ruining baseball and there's no feel for the game anymore. There's no gut decision making. But then Brian Snicker comes out and is like, well, it was in my gut. You know, my gut told me that this was the right call to make, and it was the right call. Uh, again, we we can't um, you know emphasize that enough. Uh, but I think that when when things come from your gut, somehow like the sports media sort of accepts it, especially the baseball media accepts it more. And that's why I think that the Rays need to have like a like a gut manager or you know some kind of gut consultant. <laughs> Where then every time they make a decision that's based on the numbers, they just need to say that it was based on their gut and and not the computer. (laughs) And then they'll be immune from criticism because if you make a decision from your gut, you can't be criticized, I assume. Although I guess we could go back to, uh, you know, like the Red Sox in 2003 and uh, Grady Little leaving Pedro in the game. That was a gut decision of an old school type and it came back to backfire horribly and that was ended, uh, led to endless criticism. So I guess there's degrees to this. You need to find like a right mix of gut and uh, uh, computers to explain your decisions. Obviously all the decisions should be made actually by computers. It's just right. that you need to explain them using a mix of gut and computer. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you say that, I can't help but think about that guy from Total Recall who has the, the monster on his chest yeah. as the gut as Kevin Cash had one of those, his gut manager. <laughs> I, I, don't you feel like the, the Rays would like do that, but then like screw it up somehow and like make it about like, like make it about like this is about their the the gut decision is about like probiotics or something they'd like they like screw that up and make it like yeah analytical it's, it's, in some they other still way. had to be scientific about it you're missing right? the point guys <laughs> yeah but also just about that Kevin Cash decision like Nick Anderson was who was brought in and that guy he was great during the regular season but he was having a terrible postseason he had been roughed up in the last few outings and like Snell comes up. He gives up one single, I think, after getting an out, and, like, that was enough. Yeah. Um, even though he, unlike Anderson, did not have control problems. Um, so I, I do think that was a bad decision, but I do think ultimately Neil's right. Like, it, 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 we're terrible. Like, we we only judge the ones that don't work out. Well, and they brought in <laughs> A.J. Minter, who had been good in the, in the postseason. So I think, yeah, like, the Braves had guys that they could turn to that have actually been pretty lights out which I think also makes it a little bit easier of a pill to swallow, right? You know, it's and it's so funny. I was as as a baseball fan, as an as a fan of analytics, I was really interested to see how they use the bullpen that has been very good, but needs to be managed over this long world series that has had some bullpen games, right? So I was actually really interested in the moves there. And it, it like isn't that fun too? I mean, like Baseball, you know, the big fans of the National League love double switches. There's nothing inherently beautiful about a double switch. It's just like it's fun to watch the strategy. I like strategy in who you're going to bring in to face these great hitters, too. Like, I thought that was interesting and fun. It didn't bother me. I mean, I liked not seeing the ba- the pitcher that was throwing all over the place and to see what 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 Snicker was going to do with his bullpen. I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like we just want to complain about what we, what, how things are different than they were when we were 10 years old. 
Um, and that's not a great. That's baseball. Way that to... you've encapsulated baseball media. I think in some yeah. ways. I think that's right. I think that's right. Well, one way or another, we'll have ourselves a World Series champion by this time next week. Very exciting. We'll see what happens. For now, let's take a quick break and come back to talk about college football. The first batch of rankings from the College Football Playoff Committee will be released tonight. Our model thinks the top four will be Georgia, Alabama, Oklahoma, and Cincinnati. The same four teams atop this week's Associated Press rankings, just in a slightly different order. Ohio State is just a whisper behind Cincinnati in the model, though if the Buckeyes win out, we see them as pretty good bets to get the invite. Of course, two teams standing in Ohio State's way played each other in a very entertaining game on Saturday, especially if you did not happen to attend college in Ann Arbor. Michigan State beat Michigan behind the five rushing touchdowns from Kenneth Walker III, and the Spartans jumped to fifth in the AP poll, one spot ahead of the Buckeyes. Michigan felt ninth in the poll, but all is not lost for the Wolverines. They still have a path to the playoff. It just requires that coach Jim Harbaugh conquer his biggest hurdle (laughs) on ESPN's the Paul Feinbaum show Feinbaum suggested that's all that really matters to Michigan fans yeah again I I don't want to go too hard on Harbaugh because as bad as that was he still has a chance to right the wrongs and it's really all about the end of the season If if he somehow beats Ohio State on that final Saturday what happened in in East Lansing will not matter as much Jeff, speaking for all Michigan fans, what do you think of this argument? Would a win over Ohio State just erase that loss to Michigan State? Yeah, it would. Um, but it's not going to happen. I mean, we do this every year. This is what Michigan does. They they talk about making the playoff, and then they <laughs> lose the first game. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they talk about, oh, if we just went out and beat Ohio State, we'll be uh, fine. And it might as well be talking about... You know, if the sun rises in the West tomorrow and sets in the like, it's just doesn't ever feel like it ever happens because it never <laughs> happens. Um, but yes, in theory, that's all that matters. I mean, I think the the, the thing with Michigan fans in general is that they're, they're very entitled and they expect Alabama results and get something far less than that every year. <laughs> but it doesn't change the expectation. Um, but I think that starts, I mean, they're, they're really the same thing, like success in the, you know, whether it's going to a playoff or, or going to a, uh, the Rose bowl, you know, that usually hinges on beating Ohio state anyway. So it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. This is why college football, you know, it's, it's trite, but talking about the regular season, this is like part of why the regular season does matter a lot. And you do have these sort of like built in checkpoints that are sort of like playoff games to make the playoff. Uh, and, and you kind of have to clear those hurdles to get in. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, look, uh, you, you mentioned there was a 17% chance of Michigan winning out. And if they do that, our model thinks there's a 61% chance they make the playoff. So it's not, not like a lock or anything like that, but they still control their own destiny to a certain extent. If they just keep piling up the wins, obviously that's easier said than done, but they're also favored in, uh, you know, in all of their remaining games, two of them quite heavily against Indiana and Maryland and Penn State, 57% chance. They just have the 36% chance against Ohio State. So, you know, that's the only one that they're not favored in uh, down the stretch. So that percentage doesn't factor in a potential Big Ten championship, though, right? The 61. (laughs) Does it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, we think that they have a 47% chance of winning the conference but a 61% chance of making the playoff if they went out, which is kind of interesting because that implies that there's some space there in which they don't win the Big Ten, but still are able to make the playoff. Make of that whatever you will. You know, that's what the model is is spitting out. Right. But there's also a chance they can win out and not make the, the, the Big Ten championship, you know, with obviously if Michigan State wins out. Right. And I think probably that that would be part of that um, that gap uh, involves that scenario. Yeah. If Michigan Makes State like sense. loses in the, the Big Ten championship, then right. then there'd be that opening for Michigan. Yeah, it's so funny. And like, you know, single losses during the regular season obviously wouldn't matter as much if we had more teams that could make the playoff and, and we'd, you know, there would be more of a path for Michigan and for every other team that has just the, just one loss. 
So the, the college football playoff management committee is meeting this week to discuss a couple of options for expansion. There's, you know, there had been a, a 12 team playoff um, plan put forward. Then there are t- some schools from the ACC in particular and the Big Ten and, and, and Pac-12 who are are pushing for an eight team playoff instead. Um, so there, those are being discussed this week. We're kind of tired of waiting for them to figure it out. So at 538, we took matters into our own hands. We have a piece on the site today from our colleague, Zach Wisner-Gross, that models scenarios with different numbers of playoff teams to ensure that the best team in college football gets in with as much certainty as possible. Because that's really what this is about, all about, right? Making sure that the best team is in the playoffs. So I'd love for us to talk about Zach's approach here. Neil, how many teams is, in fact, enough to make reasonably sure that we're not leaving out any team that could be the best team? Yeah, so Zach uh, took this approach, which I really like, uh, of sort of acknowledging the uncertainty in our estimate of how good each team is in college football. And it turns out that there's like more uncertainty than we probably would give credit to if we were thinking about it. Uh, And we kind of modeled that by looking at uh, our ELO ratings here at 538, uh, which really represent sort of the the estimated true quality of of a team if they were facing an average FBS team on a neutral site how much would they be favored by? So Georgia right now is a 31.3. That means they'd be 30-point favorites over an average team uh, at a neutral site. Think of like Utah State as an average team. I know that's uh, everyone finds it very easy to visualize exactly how good Utah State is. Uh, and so, you know, around that number, though, there's a lot of uncertainty, like the true quality of Georgia could be higher. It could be lower. They They could be uh, in, in a range of different sort of uh, ranks relative to other teams' true qualities, which are also unknown uh, across the landscape. So we looked at trying to estimate that uncertainty by kind of looking at the first uh, half of team seasons and saying, okay, here's using that sort of checkpoint at the end of the first half and saying, here's how good ELO thought a team was going to be. And then looking at how they played over the rest of their schedule relative to average, so adjusting for strength of schedule and all of that, uh, and saying, like, first of all, did ELO do a good job on aggregate of saying how good a team would play based on how good we thought they were? And it turns out, actually, it does a pretty good job. Like, if it, uh, the error around an ELO uh, projection over the remaining of uh, part of a season, it's centered around zero. So, like, on average, when we say a team is, like, a 31.3, they will perform to a 31.3 points above average level over the rest of their games. But in any particular case, there's a lot of variance around that. Uh, And we found that the standard error around uh, a team's ELO is about 9.4 points plus or minus. Uh, And so then what Zach did was he took that and essentially used that standard error and uh, grabbed, you know, random uh, true strengths of each team from that distribution for each team looking back uh, in the playoff era to kind of figure out how often the the top team truly was the top team, you know, by ELO and kind of looking down the list. Like sometimes the team that we have ranked 10th will actually be the best team when you sort of randomize and pull um, pull a random talent estimate from them. So he did that a bunch of times. And really the goal was to figure out how deep into a playoff field you have to go to ensure that there's a very high chance that you would have the true best team. Uh, And what he found was that if you wanted a 90% chance of having the best team in your field, you needed to take the top 11 teams to really kind of ensure that you would have that, that coverage. Now, 11 teams is a pretty tough number. It's an awkward number for a playoff bracket, but it's pretty close to 12. So essentially, you could say that uh, that uh, if you wanted a 92% chance of having the best team, you would take the 12 best teams. Uh, if you wanted a 95% chance, you would take the 16 best teams, which actually happens to be a really good number for a bracket. Uh, and so uh, that's sort of how, how his 
numbers worked and that lines up with what we've seen in the past like i know nate silver did a um like an empirical look using i think the ap poll about how often certain playoff sizes included teams that hypothetically would have been the the number one team or whatever and that lines up in terms of the idea of like okay a 12 or a 16 team playoff is sort of the ideal playoff size if you want to feel pretty confident that you got the best team. Now, I should say that if you replicate that exercise for this year, this year is a little bit more of a parity-filled year, at least below a team like Georgia. You got some teams with one loss uh, that are hanging around there that we know probably have more talent than teams that are other teams that are undefeated, like Alabama and Ohio State are probably better than Michigan State or Oklahoma or Cincinnati. Uh, and then you got some two-loss teams that are also interesting kind of hanging in there too. Notre Dame only has one loss as well. So I think uh, this year is a little bit different even um, from that. If you wanted to have a 90% chance that you had the the best team, the true best team this year, you'd have to take 16 teams just to get the 90% chance. And if you wanted a 95% chance, you'd have to go down to number 23, which happens to be your cyclone, Sarah, Iowa State. They have, they have a 0.4% chance of being the true best team this year. Here's what I know. I know that Iowa State is not the the best team that's what i know that's we can put that into into our model well sarah yeah there's a 99.6 percent chance that you're right it, uh it's well, not brocktober anymore whole, jeff it's not oh, brocktober it's not. anymore but what if the whole season was played in brocktober then i would say it would be like basically saving level yeah force. i feel like this this year maybe was the exception to that. I, I no, I, I think I think twelve sounds right. I mean, sixteen I don't even think is necessary most years. I mean, I think this year's interesting because you like maybe you can make a case for a team down there like Texas A and M, which already has proven that it can beat Alabama because it did, and but has two losses. Or or you could make a case maybe even Ole Miss, like one of these teams that way down at the bottom could be the best team in the country. But I think most years, 12 will get you there. And, like, it's not – some years, like, you go back to 2019 um, where LSU won, and, and they beat Alabama in the regular season. And Alabama uh, also lost the Iron Bowl, which made things really easy because, you know, you had undefeated Ohio State, undefeated Oklahoma, Clemson, and LSU. And it was just, like, a clear – there was no, no debate. It was a, a clear four best – um, and that year, you, you probably only needed four, and and this system worked. But I think most years, you could at least make a case that seven or eight teams um, should be in it, uh, just just because they only have one loss. Like, you know, you, we look at a team like Oregon. No one's even talking about Oregon, but they beat Ohio State, which is higher than them. Um, and they beat some other quality teams. I mean, they beat UCLA. They beat a Fresno t- State team the first week that hasn't lost since. So they have a, like a pretty good-looking resume, and yet they're not even being considered, it seems, um, possibly because they play in the Pacific time zone, which seems to never favor these teams. But Jeff, I, I think even 2019 is a really interesting example because it underscores how much more uncertainty there is than we think there is like even when when you have that clear-cut top four where it seems like okay there's not really much room for debate according to zach's numbers there was still only a 78 percent chance that that top four included the true best team that that's a lot of sort of you know, space for for some other team outside that top four to have truly been the best that got missed in the in the playoff. And that's in a situation where it seems very clear cut. I think just the nature of college football uh, and and the the relatively short schedule, the relative lack of connectivity between teams and conferences and things like that lead to this uncertainty that I think it's a lot easier to be overconfident about what we know than underconfident. Right. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because we we approach this problem not probabilistically, right? We approach it like, well, LSU is really good. LSU is probably the best team. And like give them like what, like a 90% chance of being the best team. Whereas when you when you're doing it probabilistically, it was like a 31% chance of being the best team. And that's just that's a different way of thinking than than we usually do. Well, that's also kind of an interesting point too because like you said, Oregon 
with their 2.5% chance of being the best team, if you put them in a 12-team playoff, their odds of winning the championship would probably be higher than 2.5%. I mean, naively speaking, they would have like an 8% chance if every team was equal. That's probably not the way it would uh, really shake out, but they probably would still end up with a higher chance than 2.5%. So it's kind of like, is that right also? Should we... I've always... In a, in a thought experiment, I've always been intrigued by this idea of trying to kind of set up the playoff structure so that each team's odds of winning were equal to its odds of being the best team. And if that means mm. you have to spot certain teams points, uh, you know, to start a game, like say you want uh, LSU to have a 31% chance of winning the 12 team playoff, but you don't want to like do weird things with buys or anything like that. You could give them an instant I don't know, three-point lead in all their games or five-point lead or seven, whatever the number ends up working out to. Nobody would ever do that, and that feels fundamentally like very weird and wrong or whatever, but that's right. sort of the tension here also. is like you don't want to overcorrect and give you you would drop LSU into this 12-team bracket and they probably would have less than a 31% chance of winning uh, the playoff, which isn't right either because it's like, look, they have a 31% chance of being the best team. They should have a 31% chance of winning the playoff. Of course, this all presumes that the playoff's purpose is to decide the best team, which is obviously which not true. Not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you're kind of making an argument for just going back to to the rank the voters in the polls making the making the call on who's the national champion you know just just go by what what you've done don't even worry about about a playoff um well there's limits you know you do want to <laughs> decide it on the field but maybe you want to decide it on the field with uh augmentations with with points with points for lsu i love that um can you imagine oh people would freak outcry. out i mean look that's the and that's Ugh. the the also the tension with this is you have to have a playoff system that's like explainable and palatable to normal humans not right. uh, egghead nerd types like me and so <laughs> like you're never gonna get we're lucky that we have a playoff in college football at all like That's let's true. be honest we're yeah. talking about 12 teams we're talking about i'm out here in the lunatic fringe talking about spotting teams points we're lucky that we even have this like four team playoff at all you know <laughs> yeah no it's it's a, it's a good point i don't know i do i think 12 teams does it feels the most fair so it seems like the committee might go with that it also is good math so that would be nice i think from our perspective like they would not choose it for the math reasons but we like it for the math reasons so you know we'll, we'll, we'll take our wins where we can right yeah you have to get the non-math reasons and the math reasons aligned sometimes. yeah exactly exactly but i also think like the 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 12 team, you know, very much like a structure like the NFL, like by giving a buy, that will satisfy the the fans of the teams that have like really had a dominant year. You know, yeah. like one of these like 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 George's year, for right. instance, you know, like it, it wouldn't necessarily be fair to have a, you know, a sweet 16 and have Georgia if they were to lose. Well, it would be fair because you got to win. at. I mean, it would be fair in college basketball and all other sports and many other sports. But you know, you could at least see the the argument for giving the buy and like incentivizing being that sort of extra level elite in rewarding teams for that. I think that is a good sort of middle ground. There'll be arguments about that too, which you know, which which teams get the buy, and you know, someone will have to make that yeah, decision. Totally, they should just use our Elo ratings, but they won't. Um. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would go that far. Uh, they should use Elo in in concert with other things, probably. Come on, Neil, get on brand. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm betraying the brand. Uh, I also think, yeah, the the fact that the twelve team playoff necessitates the figuring out what to do with the uneven, you know, number of teams, and someone has to get a buy. Uh, in all that does kind of work in favor of this because you do see that sort of top heavy structure most years where it's like the best team they're the number one ranked team usually has around like a 30 percent chance and then it goes down to like you know 20 something and then 15 you know most years so you do see that sort of you know, it's not a linear um, decline in, by by the rank that you go down. And so I think that that helps where like you could juice those top teams by giving them buys and kind of work that into the structure fairly easily. And it could approximate some of the advantages that they would have in, in um, the percentage chance of being the best team. 
Yeah. Well, now that we've solved the college football playoff, I feel pretty certain that the committee will just stick with four teams and what if they did a five team? It. What if Ooh. they were just like or did some weird? Let's yeah, go seven. Like a teams. wild card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just a totally uneven number. Love that. Would love that. Or what if they went down to three? They were like four <laughs> has been too many. Yeah. Let's have a three-team playoff. I mean, that would solve the like Oklahoma problem, right? Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, we'll see what what the committee uh, gives us this week, and also we'll get our first rankings tonight, so we'll 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 know what this path is for all these teams going forward. All right, let's take a break for now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At five thirty eight, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, what do you have for us? Yes, so I wanted to return to a topic that we have covered a few times, I think, on the show, uh, but not in a little while, and that is the concept of the sports equinox. Yes. Uh, which sees... For the uninitiated, that is a instance that sees uh, all of the sports basically happening at once on the same day. And there's a lot of sports that you could include in this, and, and there's kind of debate uh, about what, what level it should be included in. Um, I think generally speaking, you know, we've looked at things like the big four pro sports in North America, or the big five if you include the WNBA in there. Uh, I wanted to kind of expand it a little bit uh, for that uh, beyond that and, and include things like other things you might have watched over the weekend, like college sports. Uh, the NWSL, for instance, is, is having um, games right now. But, but no matter how you define these things, you would find if you were looking for equinoxes that this past month has given us a few of them uh, and and our first ones in a normal or at least semi-normal circumstance uh, in a few years. Uh, and I have found that in, in terms of big four sport equinoxes, big four pro sport league equinoxes, uh, the 21st of October gave us the 17th big four equinox ever in history. And then Halloween gave us number 18. Uh, now, if we're looking for ones that go beyond the big four, the 21st of October and the 31st of October also included those things, uh, and, and they included it in different ways. The 21st joined the club because it had one baseball game, one NFL game, three NBA games, and 10 hockey games, plus four college football games for a total of 19 games played on that day uh, across all those leagues. But the 31st, Halloween, had, had that beat. There was one baseball game, 13 NFL games, five NBA games, five hockey games, and two NWSL games for 26 total games being played uh, at the same time on the same day. Now that's not that number that 26 is not the most for any of the equinoxes that we've looked at. Uh, there have been some dates where there were numbers in the 30s. For instance, September 13th, 2020, and I'll get to 2020 as a whole in a second. But that date had 37 total games played on the same day. 17 baseball games, 13 NFL games, one NBA game, one NHL game, three WNBA games, and two NWSL games, all played on September 13th, 2020. And 2020 was just a banner year for sports equinoxes. It was not a banner year for much of anything else, uh, but uh, but it gave us alone in the, in the month of September, 2020, so between September 10th and September 27th of 2020, we had five sports equinoxes in that span uh, involving the big four. Uh, and in fact, at that point, there had been, before that, there had only been 11 ever. So uh, that number went up to 16. So five of the 16 big four sports equinoxes that had ever happened happened in a 17-day span in September of 2020. So 2020 was wild. All of the reschedulings, all of the pushing back of sports and then other sports trying to kind of push through normally and all those things happened all at once and gave us some days that, that this year could not compete with. But I think 
if you measure things in a different way, you could actually make the case that Halloween of this year, so Sunday night, was the single best sports equinox ever. Uh, and so what I did for that was I looked at the, uh, the equinox score, uh, which I created. I defined that as the harmonic mean which is one of my favorite means uh, of all the means. <laughs> I like that one of your one of your favorite means. You Apologies. have other favorite means. Well, yeah, the sure. Top five means. Yeah, one top of the, five means. It's in my top three means. Uh, <laughs> you know, apologies to the arithmetic and the geometric mean. Uh, but basically, <laughs> my my definition of the equinox score is you take the harmonic mean of the number of games played on a given day in MLB, NFL, NBA, and NHL plus the highest number of games played in either the WNBA college football or basketball or NWSL uh, on that day as well. So if if you do that, you get an Equinox score of 2.53 for Halloween, which beats September 13th of 2020, uh, which only had an Equinox score of 2.03. And the way that it got there was through the fact that it had the five NBA games and the five NHL games to go with the two NWSL and the uh, and the 13 NFL and the one MLB. You really see like the highest rated uh, uh, days on this score tend to be NFL Sundays. They'll give you a ton of games also. But usually those don't coincide with a lot of NBA games uh, or NHL games at the same time, and certainly not usually uh, baseball games. The September 13th of 2020 was a freak occurrence where you had 17 <laughs> baseball games and 13 NFL games to go with NBA and NHL all at once. But, uh, you know, this past Halloween really was unique in having at least five games from three of the big four plus other sports happening at the same time. There were some other interesting contenders on this list, ones that I didn't even know about until I dug into this. So, for instance, November 1st, 2009 was a sports equinox, and not just a big four equinox. It had one MLB game, 12 NFL games, seven NBA games, three NHL games, and then it joined the Super Equinox group by also having one college football game on that uh, on that day. It was a Sunday. It was a Sunday night, and there was a college football game. And That's so just I wrong. was thinking. That's wrong. What are we was doing that, here? Was that a uh, like a hurricane pushed it a day or something like that? I was trying to figure that out as well. So the stray college football game was Central Florida versus Marshall. Uh, a conference USA battle uh, at that time. Uh, and according to the Charleston Gazette Mail story that I found about Marshall's all-time strangest games, this one ranked 10th. I guess they had nine games stranger than that. Uh, <laughs> that uh, they, they said that they just moved it to Sunday so that it could be on national TV and have, a, have an ESPN broadcast, and it went up against the NFL game that night. Very bizarre. Uh, you don't often see that, but that allowed that date, November 1st, 2009, to sneak onto this list because it had not just all of the big four leagues in action, but one of the other leagues in question also in action. Uh, and then uh, in 2018, we had an LA-only equinox uh, that involved the Dodgers being in the World Series, plus the Rams, plus the Chargers, plus you know, uh, one city having all of these sports in action at the same time. And I seem to remember that there were some folks that actually tried to go physically oh, yeah. right. to all of those games. They may have chartered a helicopter, if I'm remembering right, <laughs> uh, which is, to my mind, a little excessive. You know, think, think about the environment. Think about your carbon footprint. Uh, but at the same time, you know, an L.A. sports equinox does not come along that often. But it is, it is interesting how before 2009... There, at least in this data, and this data is not complete, I should note, for um, women's college basketball before the mid-90s. Uh, and so maybe that would have some kind of effect on whether certain days would be included or not. But I don't think it would have that much of an effect. Uh, and especially given the time frames that we're looking at, we're not really you know, looking at times when, when that's in season necessarily, and the other ones are. Uh, but before 2009... 
there had not uh, there had only been one sports equinox ever by this definition before that it was on october 27th 1985 it it was only a big four equinox by the way it did not include any of the other sports that we were looking at and it was kind of a kind of a wimpy sports equinox there were 13 nfl games that day but there was only one baseball game one basketball game and one hockey game and mm. from 1985 up until november 1st 2009 no sports equinoxes at all and now we're talking about having in in 2020 we had five in a, in a year we had two this year so far uh and since 2015 we've had 13 uh of the 18 all-time big four equinoxes uh, and also in terms of just overall equinoxes, like involving the sports outside the big four, 10 of the 11 that have ever happened have happened since 2017. So we're really <laughs> living in kind of a golden age of sports equinoxes. I don't know what that means. Certainly we know why in 2020 it happened. I don't know why outside of 2020 we're seeing more of it. I don't know if it's just you know, there's a glut of sports compared to what there used to be. Uh, and certainly in the, you know, up until the late 90s, you didn't have the WNBA. Uh, and, and the, you know, the NWSL is kind of a recent addition to the, the ranks of the leagues as well. So, you know, you can kind of see that. But like there wasn't a single day in which there was a stray kind of college football game that happened to coincide and overlap with the World Series and uh, an NFL game. I mean, the addition of uh, Thursday night uh, football also, I think, has helped some of the um, uh, some of these sports equinoxes exist, because before that, you didn't really have a chance to um, get some of these other games happening on the same day you'd have to have it be either on an nfl sunday or monday night uh yeah. or whatever yeah. but still i think it's very interesting that um that we're in this golden age of of more equinoxes ever uh, than ever and you could make the case according to my metric at least uh that halloween was the sports equinox of all sports equinoxes it it, it felt like it it felt like it. There was a lot. There was just a lot going on. <laughs> We've got all this. It's, I, I don't know. Do you like sports equinoxes? I feel like you do. Do you like the experience of it as a fan? I don't. I just watch football when that happens. <laughs> Football's Trump. <laughs> nice. You were watching football, Sunday night football instead of the, watching, uh, uh, the baseball oh yeah. game? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that, Neil. And that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Mellon. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.